This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Joseph Cox. He's a tech journalist, a very good one, and he's going to be talking to us about cyber warfare. When it comes to this topic, there's a lot of nonsense going around, but Joseph knows exactly what he's talking about. So he's going to give us an insight into what's really going on. Talking about hackers, online terrorism, deep web, all sorts of stuff. We've got the Popular Front support patches back in stock, so if you want one of them, be quick because they're selling out fast. Go to popularfront.bigcartel.com. This episode is sponsored by Forsecure and thedefensepost.com. To support Popular Front, to keep us moving forward, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. I think maybe the most relevant question to ask first would be, um, I guess, what, what is the biggest cyber warfare threat right now? At the moment, everyone is talking, of course, about disinformation and how that plays into things. And maybe there'll be Twitter bots pushing fake news or Facebook pages or whatever it may be. But while there's so much attention on that, like nobody really stops to think about how effective or arguably like ineffective it is. So... As a way of answering the question sort of backwards, I would say that disinformation is not, like, the most important thing in cyber warfare right now. I mean, more generally, it's going to be how there is very little distinction between personal and professional when it comes to cyber conflict more generally. And I'm really, really zooming out here. But in when, when a hacker, like, targets a soldier or a an official from an adversary they're not going to go for like the government email you know what I mean because that's going to be the one that may be more secure or whatever it is they're going to go for the squishy target they're going to go for the shitty android phone that the um, person calls his wife on or they're going to go for like the gmail account that doesn't have 2FA and kind of what this shows is that we're all using the same popular consumer infrastructure you know Google and Microsoft and whatever it may be Um, And even though those are consumer products and we're using them as ordinary consumers, they are the hotbed of when it comes to, like, cyber conflict. Um, Or cyber warfare, I suppose, but I'll probably just say more cyber conflict because it's, um, you know, we're still arguing about what cyber warfare is. But it's that kind of blurring between personal and professional, which is um, just going to increase. I mean, we had it with um, the DNC leaks and when the Russians, of course, hacked... Um, the DNC and related officials they went for John Podesta's personal email address and that is where a hell of a lot of the stuff came from and ended up on WikiLeaks Um, because yeah it's a squishier target so you just have to bear that in mind when you're dealing um, with hacking even if you're an official they're going to go for the easier bit yeah right so it's not you know when people are kind of on Twitter and whatever screaming about you know I don't know chatbots have swayed the election or whatever the hell it is they're all talking about that that you don't think that's a bigger issue as people are making out yeah i mean there's just so much hype about it and it's and of, of course it's an issue because it's very hard to quantify like it's really hard to tangibly measure what was the impact from this piece of fake news which then got tweeted and then did that change a vote or something like that uh when it admittedly does get interesting is when more established voices start pushing that disinformation so that may be i don't know michael flynn he was found retweeting a lot of the russian propaganda bots uh and even though that 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 was probably accidental um but when it gets amplified by 
a, a sort of a voice of authority. That's interesting. And then, of course, as journalists, um, there's been several pieces about how media articles have picked up the bullshit from the bots. So I think there was one a while ago where there was someone walking across a London bridge and it looked like a Muslim was pushing someone in front of a bus and it was, you know, a very misleading uh, photo, the angle it was taken, that sort of thing. That by itself is pretty boring. But when media outlets pick it up, that's when it does admittedly yeah, get a little bit more interesting. And it's kind of ironic that we're all piling on this as journalists and then we're the one or one of the few voices that actually does give it some sort of legitimacy. And that's when it gets interesting. Yeah, it's kind of the uh, the serpent eats its own tail kind of thing, you know what I mean? Right, exactly, yeah. We're all clamming around trying to find like this next big story and then we didn't really realise that we're the ones contributing to it. I mean, when I was at the Daily Beast, we did a piece about, um, I think her name was Julia Abrams and she was sort of a Russian persona and by herself, yeah, she wasn't that compelling. But then when it turned up in BBC, Huffington Post, there may be an advice one um, as well, I can't quite remember, but a lot of media outlets. Um, yeah, that's that's when it actually gets important. Yeah, so I guess with that in mind, you know, we're talking about the the threat, the hackers, you know, it's not particularly the chatbots or the Twitter bots or whatever. Where is the threat right now? Who are the biggest players in the terms of, you know, hacking, cyber conflict, that sort of thing? Yeah, so I mean, before going to like specific players, it's more the threat from hackers now, um, especially some of the groups, that they don't really give a shit about breaking norms. So cyber espionage you know, is generally tolerated as fair game. You have one nation state hacking another one, they get information that's, you know, part of a uh, debate or a negotiation or something like that, just very traditional espionage, just with a hacking component, and everyone kind of tolerates that, almost in the same sort of way when you have the Turks likely putting a microphone or some sort of bugging inside the Saudi consulate. I mean, that is just nation-on-nation espionage and it's fine, whatever. What changes with hacking is when you have some actors who will do something different, such as dumping documents, like the Russians. You know, they, they won't just go and hack a political party, they'll dox the political party, and they'll air all of their dirty washing out. That is unusual. The US aren't going to do that. Or you may have the Chinese, who, although they died down for a bit, they're now coming back up, they do financial espionage, which is, you know, targeting Lockheed Martin, or whoever it may be, and stealing plans to then make their own fighter jets, whatever it may be. So, generally the threat is going to be that more nations, or the same nations but more aggressively, are going to keep breaking these norms, they're going to keep doing the financial espionage, they're going to keep going, fuck it, we're just going to give all this stuff to WikiLeaks or we're just going to post it on a Twitter account. Um, and as for like the individual actors, uh, and of course like, in interrupt me when you think like there's something like specific here, but I'll just start with the Russians, like, sure, sure. I mean, yeah, so they're the ones who are breaking the norms and dumping documents and stuff, but what kind of makes them interesting is that, you know, they traditionally piggyback off and take advantages of um, criminals in their country. So let's say there's someone who has a botnet, and that's just collecting banking details or whatever it may be that's just spread all around the world, and it's a piece of malware, and it's getting all this like financially driven information. The Russians are probably going to go, hey, that's really, really good, but can we use that access um, for us? Can you go and look up the details that you have on this Ukrainian? or whatever it may be. Um, so they're kind of leveraging that access without necessarily um, 
without making it a state policy, which is different to the Koreans I'll go into, but they're always piggybacking off from there because they have this resource that they have all of these hackers who don't really have jobs in Russia, so they have to do something which is going to crime and then the state can get involved in there. So the Russian state is, is kind of harvesting people that are hacking and what do they say to them like do you want to go to prison or do you want to work with us because i can't imagine many hackers would just say yeah no problem i'll work for you without some kind of threat right right i mean some get financial compensation and then yeah as you say i mean the fsb isn't going to be super friendly about it they are going to say well you work for us now basically of course it depends on the case i mean there was the yahoo one where that guy popped um, Yahoo's database, and from what I understand, he was already on their radar, and then the FSB officials kind of directed him to that. Um, so, and of course, that's going to be threat of, well, you, you, you work for us now. And that, that was an email hack, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like email addresses and passwords, like a normal sort of data dump, but when you're dealing, and this goes back to my earlier point, when you're dealing with these huge consumer platforms like gmail or yahoo or aol even you know back in the day like there is still going to be targets of interest there from an espionage perspective even though it's an ordinary consumer product so if the if the russians or the uh, if the fsb can get into oh yahoo which sounds fucking boring normally like oh my god there's going to be so much noise in there that they can filter it down and find like some really interesting targets like yeah i don't know the email address that an official is using to contact his mistress or something like that there's just like so much there's so much shit in there it's like sifting the sand basically right exactly and even though that's just a product used by everyday people, it's going to be leveraged by nation-states, like, in, in some way, yeah. And I, I kind of spoke about how the Russians are breaking these norms of dumping documents. The thing that lets them do that, apart from just their audacity and, like, the ballsiness of just doing it, they the Russians are really agile. Like, they can respond super quickly. And I don't know exactly why that is, because maybe it's like a lack of bureaucracy compared to the Americans or something, but when CrowdStrike, cybersecurity company, came out publicly and said, hey, we believe this actor has hacked um, the DNC, I think it was within, within 24 hours, Guccifer 2.0, this sort of weak... Uh, mirage that the Russians put up claiming it was the Romanians but it was actually uh, the Russian GRU and then they start dumping documents that was so quick like they they get doxxed they respond they dump the documents um, maybe it was premeditated maybe it was a little bit improvisational but you're not going to see that um, with all nation states like they the Russians can really improvise and really just respond uh, much better than other countries this is why I always say to people there is like the West cannot beat Russia at the moment with the way it's responding to things because Russia is playing its own game and the West is trying to respond with rules that Russia's like we don't care about that <laughs> you know it's, it's 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 the same way Democrats you know the way they're still kind of you see them responding to Trump you know it's like you do you do realize he doesn't give a shit about your rules so you have to play by something else you know what I mean it's it's almost like oh the, like you said the audacity of them they just don't care yeah yeah I mean I can't remember specifically who it was I think it was the former director of national intelligence um clapper made a comment something like oh we need like a some sort of cyber agreement that would put these sorts of norms i was mentioning in a more like formal setting yeah but <laughs> the russians aren't gonna give a shit like it, even if they signed it they're not gonna stop like they found a they found a crazy winning strategy here where they can do something for 
relatively little investment. Like, it doesn't cost that much financially or resource-wise to get documents and dump them online. Uh, it requires, you know, more resources to maintain in a network and then do some more spy shit. But actually publishing the documents, you just give them to WikiLeaks. It doesn't cost any time or money, basically. Uh, and kind of the same with the disinformation when it arguably could be effective. They can just push that out on the cheap. Um, so when you have a country with a, an economy as crap as Russia's, they are, they're not going to give this up. Well, uh, not at all. They're just going to keep doing this low-cost... Um, but potentially high return um, investment. As I think we saw the 2016 election with these hacks and these data dumps, and of course just all the hype around them now, everybody thinks Russia is like this crazy boogeyman of cyberspace, and they do have some effective stuff, but yeah, they didn't have to put much resources into this, into getting this image. At, le at least when it comes from, at least when it comes from the dumping documents and stuff. When they hack infrastructure, that's more advanced. But yeah, yeah, it's like they just weaponized like lolsec or something or the equivalent. You know what I mean? Right, right, exactly. And again, that doesn't it doesn't require much to do. It just requires actually having the balls to do it, which not many people do. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned Guccifer. How do you say Guccifer? Guccifer. Some people say Guccifer. I always say like Guccifer is in goose, and like I'm not going to change, even though I kind of know it's wrong. <laughs> like, I know it's wrong, but like that's just how I say it. So yeah, yeah I'll go with you. So you so you, you mentioned Guccifer. Who is Guccifer 2.0 and I guess the original Guccifer? Because it's a really interesting story, I think. Yeah. So the original Guccifer is a Romanian hacker who said he got some Clinton emails and various other things. And, you know, he was convicted and sentenced for that. Um, and he pops up from time to time. He gives interviews, that sort of thing. Guccifer 2.0 comes up, releases these documents from the DNC and from John Podesta's email account, and says, oh, I was inspired by the original Guccifer. I'm also a lone Romanian hacker, and I'm doing it for my country, and down with United States, or whatever it may be. Um... A load of different evidence came up, even in 2016, uh, and now it's, I mean, it's certain, but there was a lot of evidence that Guccifer 2.0 wasn't uh, this lone Romanian hacker. I mean, one of the best bits uh, that my colleague Lorenzo got was he started to interview uh, Guccifer 2.0 just in Twitter DMs, and... Lorenzo then started doing uh, asked if they can chat in Romanian I mean if this guy's a Romanian hacker presumably he can speak in his own language right so Lorenzo's using Google Translate or whatever you think right you'd yeah you'd hope and then Guccifer 2.0 does reply but it's in like really obvious uh, at least to a Romanian native speaker like it has a lot of inaccuracies that apparently a Russian speaker may make or if they were using Google Translate themselves which like puts massive doubt on him actually being a Romanian uh, and then one of like the other main bits that came that came out um, really early on was that a piece of malware found like in the DNC uh, ecosystem of hacks had the same IP address hard-coded into the malware, as in, in the malware it said, hey, when you have information, I want you to phone back to this IP address, as malware does. That was the exact same IP address in a piece of malware found by the Germans in the hack of the Bundestag, which they attributed to Russia. So there was a really quite strong forensic um, link there. And now we have other things such as... Um, uh, Guccifer 2.0 apparently logged into one of the accounts I think it was maybe the WordPress one from an IP address linked to the GRU 
Um, and like this, inf- this inf- like a lot of this information was public, as I said, from 2016. But people just wouldn't fucking read the reports. There was like the one from SecureWorks, uh, part of Dell, which showed like all the different sorts of um, targets they had because they left their um, targeting account exposed. And you- you'll go on Twitter, and there'll be all these people saying, "Oh, you know, you can't know it's the Russians." It's like, but did you read the report? Well, no, but you can't. No, there's just so much lack of. Um, I don't want to sound patronising, but lack of understanding, or I suppose faith, in attribution. People are like, oh, well, you can never really know who hacked. You definitely can. Like, attribution is a very... It can be very difficult, but it's definitely not impossible. And it can be really, really well done. Well, maybe you can explain that then, because how do you definitely know? Because I'm, I, I get what you're saying completely. I've seen a lot of like nonsense as well, but you know that is the post-truth world we kind of live in now. People don't want to accept anything. But how can you actually know someone who was hacked? Because obviously you can change IP addresses, all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess first of all, kind of what you alluded to, I guess I say why it is difficult to know. And as you say, you could route your traffic through a load of different computers. So even though you're hacking from the UK, you may use a server in the Philippines. And then when the person, the victim, goes and checks their logs, they're like, oh, someone broke into my email account from the Philippines, even though you were ultimately on the other side of the world. Um, And that happens, and governments and just ordinary criminal hackers do use um, proxies all the time. But it's the sort of holistic collection of information that can provide a really robust um, attribution assessment. And maybe I shouldn't have used the word certainly, uh, because of course everything is still going to be you know, low confidence, moderate confidence, high confidence, if you want to use like these intelligence terms. But it would be a combination of stuff like forensic information, perhaps on the victim's side, oh, connected from this thing, uh, they left a piece of malware which is only ever used by this group because it's a non-public piece of malware, and then we saw it in this other hack that was also attributed to XYZ, something like that. When a hacker starts to use open source tools, as some do, that's when attribution gets really, really difficult. Because if they just say, oh, they used Metasploit, which is a sort of program where you just select which exploit you want to fire, hit enter, and it will just do that for you. Anyone can download that. Like script kids. Right, exactly. But if you're a nation state, you may it may be good to look like a script kiddie. Because you're going to have no idea who it was. Um, but yeah, attribution is possible. And then the, there's sort of a more debate around whether you actually bother doing attribution and whether you name them. So, I mean, one company called Dragos, um, a private cybersecurity firm, but they do really good work on um, infrastructure and critical systems and that sort of thing. They probably could find out who was behind stuff, but as policy, they don't do attribution because they don't think it's relevant to, well, their customers and to the general public. Saying that, and going back to your original question, one of the key things of attribution can be motivation. Like, unless you're doing a really elaborate false flag, double false flag, whatever convoluted hacking operation, the motivation uh, is probably going to be dictated, or at least apparent, from who they're targeting. You know what I mean? Like, the DNC gets hacked, well, it's not going to be the Irish. Yeah, that's just to make a really, really shit example. But, you know what I mean? There is something in the target, and you can get motivation from that, and that does contribute to attribution once you have the forensic stuff as well. So we could say then that basically attributing these cyber attacks comes down to kind of more, I guess, traditional kind of detective work, if you know what I mean, like building a profile. Yeah, 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 exactly. You, 
you should never attribute just based on like not not even based on one piece of evidence of course that would be stupid regardless but you probably shouldn't attribute based only on forensic evidence while ignoring who the target was or what the possible motivation was um because you're probably going to be wrong or have a higher chance of being wrong as well it's taking these different types of evidence and trying to combine them um into one as well right got you what what i'm i tell you what i'm interested in is how hackers can actually affect like physical infrastructure because we've all seen the films where i don't know some guy in his basement with like 50 screens is hammering his keyboard and then i don't know your toaster blows up or, or the grid goes down or whatever how realistic is that you know how how possible is it that a hacker could actually start bringing down physical infrastructure like i don't know make your trains crash or, or something like that it's a hard question because there's a shitload of hype around it um every time there's like a potential hack against an energy company media goes wild and oh my god they found russian malware in this thing and there was even a washington post piece um maybe last year where it was oh they found yeah exactly this russian malware in an energy company and it turned out to just be like a generic um banking trojan or like something that was just like you know a normal piece of malware right it's malware but it's not trying to kill everybody or turn off the grid right right you have to be very specialized to be able to develop that piece of malware and so even though there is all of that hype around it the threat worryingly is real um in very specific circumstances so of course the first one we had was stuxnet which was the americans and the israelis hacking into the iranian uh enrichment plant and then causing systems in there to basically malfunction and give the iranians false information that oh no your systems are fine when actually they were spinning around and destroying their nuclear program uh then you have the russians more recently who traditionally around christmas i mean we'll see if it happens again and again but last year and i think the year before um russian hackers did shut down energy related infrastructure in ukraine and have caused blackouts which is this sort of hollywood um over the top doomsday scenario uh and i mean it wasn't catastrophic but it was real and it was tangible there was something around the nuclear plant as well if i remember correctly right right yeah yeah there i mean there's quite a few of them like bubbling up and stuff now and then like the most recent one was in saudi arabia there was sort of a petroleum uh, like a petrol plant and the worrying thing there was which makes it very unusual is that the malware was designed to disable safety systems which then could have caused in virtue of that physical harm now that is new like stuxnet was fucking up the iranians nuclear program but it wasn't trying to kill somebody this looked like it was actually trying to cause physical harm um to human beings like at least potentially but in, in what way like an explosion or yeah something like that so it would turn off these systems that would um protect against that sort of thing and then f from extension there would be an explosion and it didn't happen it failed but the fact that they even tried that is pretty crazy and i had my money on that being the iranians against the saudis but then a recent report came out and says it was actually one of the russian crews um i don't really know what to think of that that honestly took me a little bit by surprise um and maybe maybe we need more attribution around that anyway but yeah like the, those are the three main ones when you have the stuxnet one and then the power grids and then this actual physical harm um yeah the threat is real 
but it's not like oh my god they're going to take down New York or something like that like there is still a gap between um, what actually happens and that doomsday scenario because systems are so complex and different and like if you go and make a piece of malware to target the Saudi petrol plant like that malware potentially may not work in other places you know what I mean? Because of the the makeup of the plant, the software they use and stuff, and which is not to say you couldn't then port it to a different facility, but that's going to require a lot of fucking work as well. Right? There's no template. You can't be you can't be a script kiddy and start shutting down power plants, basically. Right, right, right. Which is kind of what like so, and we could touch on this. Like some Islamic State people were saying that, and then, I mean, we even had it years ago when. Um, US government officials were saying, oh my god, Anonymous will take down the power plant, even though no one from Anonymous, uh, the power grid, even though no one from Anonymous ever said that and stuff, so yeah, you can craft malware for specific targets, but having like a blanket sort of um, approach just isn't like technically realistic. We know about uh, you know, we know Russia always you know, up to their ears in hacking, and we know China's up to it as well, but what about the West? What are we doing? Surely, I know we're, we're usually, we leave some ridiculous kind of back doors open by accident, but we must have some kind of team out there doing the same sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of Western, and when I say that, I basically mean Five Eyes, you know, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, UK and United States. Uh, they're always doing a lot of stuff. A lot is the traditional cyber espionage, uh, espionage I mentioned, which, you know, gang information and that sort of thing. Like, when GCHQ, uh, the UK inter Intel Agency, hacked Belgicom, which is um, a very large supplier of SIM cards in Belgium, that was uh, ostensibly to get information. It wasn't to destroy Belgicom or something like that. And it's still a very controversial hacking operation because obviously that's a, n a neutral or an allied country. Um, but we're doing loads of stuff. The difference is, um, at least from what we've seen, is that there is a lot more bureaucracy. So we got some formerly uh, classified documents that show the planning that went into Cybercom, which is a part of the US um, military, um, their hacking operation against the Islamic State. And the idea was to go in and ruin ISIS's um, infrastructure, where they host propaganda, that sort of thing. And this wasn't like, oh, one day we're just going to pop it and hack these servers and then wipe the content. There are hundreds of pages of consultations with other agencies like the FBI and various parts of the intelligence community, getting approval from them. They can pitch in, um, potentially talk to allies and stuff. And like this is over a course of weeks and then months. Uh, as opposed to what I said with the Russians, who they get docs and 24 hours later then they dump the documents. Um, so yeah, we're hacking all over the place. Um, I mean, which probably as we should. Um, I mean, any nation that isn't hacking nowadays is like, what the hell are you doing? You needed to be in this shit like 15 years ago. Um, but the only thing that's like really separating these countries now is... Um, technical ability and then just what they actually decide to do um so yeah we're we're all over the place but it is different in character to like the russians or the chinese yeah and what i'm seeing more of now specifically in ukraine is basically civilian hackers getting involved with the war so for example in ukraine there's a group called are you hate you know russia hate not a great name um there's a group called inform nepalm and i i've spoken to a few of them before i actually met one of them when i was i was out in the east one time and what they do often is they'll kind of hack into 
or at least they claim to hack into the Russian-backed separatist computers. You know, they'll send coordinates to soldiers. And I know at least once, you know, this is the only one I have actual evidence for, at least once that has actually happened where these hackers have got a hold of information from the separatists and given it to, you know, frontline soldiers or, or militias. In fact, there was even a, a point where they hacked um, Motorola's phone and Motorola being one of the war criminals that was blown up and kind of proved that he was cheating on his missus and all sorts of stuff like this. Do you think we'll see more of that and how legitimate do you think it is do you think it's actually civilian guys or do you think it's just some i don't know some government agency yeah i mean i suppose it'll be case by case because kind of as you imply like they may say they're citizens when actually it's a front for like some part of a military agency or something like that but i don't see it like i, I it's definitely not impossible and like as you say you, you've, you've met these people like and that sort of thing and you get patriotic hackers i mean you get patriotic american hackers and that sort of thing i mean a while ago and this wasn't that sophisticated but i think it was earlier this year there was one guy who scanned a load of exposed servers in russia and china and then just like planted a sort of graphic of an american flag on them like saying hey don't fuck with our elections um which like wasn't the most like, it wasn't the biggest hack in the world, right? But, like, it, from all appearances, that was just a patriotic, random guy being like, well, fuck it, I'm going to pop these servers and see what I can get or see what I can do. So, yeah, I mean, and especially as the technical barrier for entry, like, lowers and potentially more people just get involved in hacking anyway. And, I mean, Ukraine is, it has, like, a very healthy like, hacking community anyway. But... Yeah, I think we can. I think we can see more of that. Definitely. I mean, when you just said that, you know, this hacking can actually provide some like robust intelligence. That happens the other way, and this is this is more like the real cyber warfare stuff. It's not a guy running around with a keyboard or you know anything like that. Even though some of the US uh, military adverts have that and shit. I mean, there was that other one where um, apparently Russia hacked into the developer of this app that the Ukrainians were using to inform each other of artillery, artillery positions and then swapped it with a malicious version which could then gain intelligence on those positions and then send them back. Now that is real... that's real warfare stuff. You know, that, that, that's, not, that's not just, oh, we're going to screw this election or something. That's a real military intelligence sort of thing. And I think a lot more of that happens than we probably... Um, the information is probably publicly available. I think it happens a lot more than we probably actually know about, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. In fact, it reminds me of just this random story. I remember when I was uh, when I was reporting on the, you know, the PKK war, the, the Kurdish militants in southeast Turkey, and there was a group in Istanbul and them areas which they were like, oh, we're the, the hacking network of the PKK, and I was like, yeah, bullshit. And then they sent me these pictures and they had like weapons and they'd written their name, you know, of their hacking group. I forget it now, but it's like, I don't know, BG Hack or whatever. And they'd written it in like, you know, bullets. And I was like, shit, like these guys, they're really involved. And then, <laughs> then when I went down to the southeast and actually met some of the militants, the real fighters, one of these kids showed me a picture and I said, hey, I've seen that before. And he said, yeah, they messaged me on WhatsApp. They asked me to do this thing with my bullets and then I sent it back to them. They just claim it's them. So these kids were actually sat in the IT place, like doing a little hack and like, you know, defacing kind of Grey Wolf websites. But they weren't actually doing anything like that. I just thought that's so funny, you know. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, and that kind of just shows like kind of what we alluded to earlier that 
it, it, it can be difficult to know who to trust. Like, that's, <clears throat> that's hard enough when you see someone in person. Like, it's even fucking harder when, like, you're talking to someone on a chat program, they could be fucking anywhere, or they could be anyone. Um, we've spoken a lot about kind of state actors using hacking, and even, you know, patriotic hackers perhaps helping people on the front line. What happens to, you know, like, Anonymous and Lulsec and all of those guys? Like, where are they? Because I always found them as, as mischievous and, you know, causing a lot of problems. I thought they were hilarious, you know, and, and they did a lot of cool shit. You know, like they wrecked the reputation of Scientology. Why don't we really see any of that anymore? Yeah, it's a shame. Like, the Lulsec, you know, the Anonymous ones, as you say, we just, we don't really have these big crews anymore. Uh, and I couldn't really, I could, honestly couldn't really tell you why. Like, maybe it was just a slice of hacker culture that kind of died away and then everyone got vanned and rounded up and, you know, put in prison or whatever. But, I mean, we still have, we still have hacker gangs. They're just not so whimsical. I mean, we had the impact team that targeted the dating website Ashley Madison. And, like, no one had ever heard of the impact team, at least that I knew of, like before that or after they just came and went oh they sorry they were the guys that hacked that kind of website for married guys that basically wanted to cheat on their wives right right exactly but like nobody's heard from them since at least publicly and nobody heard about them before uh but you can't like it would be very unlikely if that was the only hack that these people have ever done you know what i mean it would just be under a different name or something uh and then we have like this other group called the dark overlord which targeted a production house of netflix and um like health facilities in the u.s and a government contractor and stuff and their like mo is to hold them to ransom like to blackmail these companies uh and they're pretty successful at it and they're pretty ruthless like they are as far from anonymous or lolsec as you can get they don't fuck around um, they do have some of the whimsical stuff, like they will taunt their victims on Twitter, but they're entirely financially motivated. And like, this is kind of inside, but in the same sort of way that the early dark web, where you had the drug markets, was all about libertarian and like freedom and put what you want in your body, and then the Ukrainians and the Russians and the other hackers came over and kind of made the dark web like this for-profit uh, total industry. In that same sort of way where we had the anonymous and the lol sex, like, oh, we're just doing this to expose whatever, and also it's fun, like, those guys have gone, and now it's just the financial guys. Um, I mean, they're probably not wholly comparable, but, yeah, there is a gap here where we just don't have the funny hacks anymore, <laughs> you know, like, all the funny crews. It's a shame. I really came up in that kind of time, you know. I'm, I'm a big internet kid, and I kind of, I was, I don't know, I was, like, 19 when all that stuff was happening, and it was just amazing. You know, I was never into hacking. I'm too stupid, but it was just amazing to see, like, Lulsec just with that stupid logo with the guy with the wine just fucking with people, you know. I just thought that was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you just, you don't really get that effort anymore. You know, um, and I mean, I suppose if you do want to look for like something that's kind of related today, it would be like the Russian memes or something, where the Internet Troll Factory will do these quite, you know, over-the-top Photoshop jobs or something. But uh, it's just not the same. It's just not as fun. You know, what I mean, it's too, it's too serious. Like, I just want someone to like pop something and dump some random shit on Twitter, same. and then like, yeah, that that that's where it's fun and interesting. But yeah, I think the problem is as well that like the 4chan culture, you know, and people scream into their computer screens for saying this but it wasn't I don't care what anyone says it wasn't it didn't used to be 
dominated by fascists. It was dominated by freaks and weirdos, you know, and it was just like, but now it, it I think it really is, you know, there is no irony, there's no, it, it's just like, fuck me, a load of like neo-Nazis or white supremacists or like actual, you know, neo-fascists kind of just exercising their legs. Whereas I really don't think it was that before, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's probably a fair point. As you say, now it is just straight up Nazis and like, yeah, no irony and... I mean, and when they're being playful, they're doing it to run some sort of meme campaign against Democrats or, you know, against trans people or whatever it may be. Like, yeah, it's just, it's just not the same anymore. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we touched on the deep web there a little bit. I know you know a lot about what's going on there. Uh, to be honest, I haven't seen any grain of truth in most of the stories I've read about kind of war and the deep web. You know, I think I read something once ISIS are trying to sell like isotopes on the deep web. No, they're not. Uh, there is assassins. No, none of them. They're just stealing your Bitcoin. Um, just to finish up, I think it'd be interesting. Is there anything you've found on there that's actually really quite interesting and, and I guess dark? I mean, of course, the darkest shit, which is very, very much real, is going to be unfortunately child abuse material, and like that. I mean, I mean, that's not even, and that's not even surprising, right? I mean, you have these very large-scale busts where the FBI will hack thousands of people uh, simultaneously or near simultaneously because they visit a website, and that stuff's really, really real. But then, as you say, like the sort of hyped-up shit, like assassins, no. Uh, whenever you go to one of these websites they're much more likely to be a scam or it will be a scam website which is then providing information to the FBI, which did happen uh, or you'll be communicating right, exactly, or you'll be communicating with someone and they turn out to be um, an FBI agent. I mean, probably one of the darker things that does come up is like you can buy poison on the dark web and I mean we had one recently where a guy um, killed himself I believe after buying something off the dark web and he was left in the car for like a week like in New York or something and nobody knew he was dead and like it's much it's on a much more low level human sort of um, tier uh, that you can find all the really dark shit but yeah not Islamic State um, yeah selling like you know weapons or, or whatever it may be uh, you'll occasionally get an Islamic State website or one claiming to be as oh we're trying to raise funds for the jihad or whatever it may be and like they've got other shit to finance themselves <laughs> like they, they don't need the ball ache of like bitcoin and like ethereum yeah yeah jihad coin is not coming yet right right they, like it's just not the use case really like they don't really need it and then just like i mean really briefly just because mentioned islamic state and then everyone talks about them oh what's the hacking threat from these terrorist organizations it's like even when there's people who believe in Islamic State would publish information like the name of soldiers and the said we hacked it, they got that from Google searches and then it was then found in a spreadsheet online and they just redistributed it. So like whenever there's hype around um, the dark web in Jihad or more broadly technology in Jihad, um, and I, I don't mean drones, I mean like hacking, like yeah, it's pr there's probably not going to be much to it, but maybe that'll change, you know? I mean, you just mentioned drones there. What are the chances that hackers might be able to, I don't know, in the future, start literally hacking drones, hacking weapons systems? Yeah, so this is difficult because there aren't, like, many real-world cases of it, but the threat is there. And the, there was a recent government report from the US where it says, um, here are all the issues, as in the hacking issues, with our weapons. And there was stuff like crappy default passwords to log in and, like, really basic security stuff. And then just recently, there was a piece in Forbes uh, from Tom Fox Brewster talking about how DJI, 
the very popular drone manufacturer had left a vulnerability so that if you knew the correct URL and you visited it, you could stream the live footage from any number of drones. Um, which is wild, and like that's a serious security issue, and it got fixed, whatever. But those sorts of holes, um, if they're found, like will be exploited, sure. Okay. So, what are you working on, mate? What can people look forward to you uh, coming out in the in the future? If you can talk about it, I know your work's you know not always things you can talk about. Yeah, I mean, I'll just talk really generally, but it's it's more at the moment like the lowering of the barrier of entry when it comes to certain technologies. So you'll hear about people who will take over phone numbers and then you can break into email accounts and that sort of thing. Um, like that is far from uh, a capability of a nation state. That is literally something that teenagers can do by ringing up Vodafone or whatever and then stealing a lot of money, a lot of Bitcoin or getting a lot of sensitive information from someone. And the same with like malware and that sort of thing, like you will have malware that's used for spying on wives and husbands and that sort of thing. Um, and then you'll have like Hamas who will make fake Facebook profiles and distribute a dating app that's actually malware. And like that is not um, a highly technical uh, tool but it's highly effective in that context. And the same with the taking over the phone numbers and that sort of thing. So yeah, more generally, we're just looking into how, even if it's boring from a technical level, it can be really impactful if you do it in the right way. It sounds to me like clever deception using low tech cyber warfare seems to be the way forward for these groups. Yeah, totally, because you don't have to be a fucking computer genius to do it. You don't have to have a lot of resources. If you just play the deception game correctly, you'll get access. I mean, just really briefly, there was one example where the Egyptian government would hack activists. And the way to do that was they arrested one of the activists in real life, and then to all of his friends, immediately sent a Dropbox link saying, hey, your friends has just been arrested, here is the indictment. Now, if they hadn't arrested the person and just sent the Dropbox link, nobody's probably going to click that, right? They'll be like, well, I can't do that, it's, it's too suspicious. When someone has literally been pulled off the street and into the back of the van or the whatever, you're going to fucking click that link. Like, it is, it's almost genius in, like, how devilish that sort of manipulation is, yeah. And that's an incredibly low-resource approach, but it's the correct one to get people to um, do what you want them to do. I mean, it goes to show it doesn't matter how good your tech is, you know, human mistakes are always going to kind of, you know, cut you up there in, in terms of security. Um, I think that was really good, mate. Where can uh, where can people follow your work and get hold of you if they need to? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter, Joseph F. Cox, C-O-X. Uh, currently at Motherboard, uh, motherboard.vice.com. And just on my Twitter, there's my signal. If you ever want to, like, ping about cyber shit, yeah, I'm always, I'm always looking for new stuff to cover. Okay, mate. Thank you very much. That was brilliant. Cheers, man. So that was Joseph Cox telling us all about the real threats of cyber warfare without the kind of caveats of bullshit that often come with, um, you know, cyber warfare reporting. There's so much nonsense out there. But Joseph really knows what he's talking about, so definitely do check out his work. This episode was sponsored by Force Secure. They are a cybersecurity consultancy and digital forensics firm. Um, one of their employees is a friend of the show. They heard I was doing a cyber warfare episode, got in touch, uh, showed me what they were all about, and said they wanted to sponsor an episode. Though. So I thought, you know what, yeah, that's cool. So check them out, Force Secure. 
The episode is also sponsored by thedefensepost.com, defense with an S, check them out. And if you want to support Popular Front, if you want to help keep things moving forward, please do support us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash popularfront. I'm trying to keep this as independent as possible. I've always said I do not want to sell my soul out. I will never sell Popular Front out. But, you know, if we want to keep moving forward, um, you know, and people do like what we're doing, please do consider pledging at patreon.com slash popularfront. You get a lot for your money, I think, you know, for the price of, like, fuck all, really, like, you know, $5, $10, whatever. Um, You get bonus episodes, narrated articles, access to the Discord, all sorts of stuff like that. Oh, and also, like I said at the start, we have the Popular Front support patches, the morale patches. They're back in stock. Um, We sold the first hundred really quick in about 12 hours. Um, We've got another couple hundred restocked there, but they are selling out fast as well. So go to popularfront.bigcartel.com if you want one of them. They're really cheap, shipping worldwide. The price for shipping worldwide isn't too expensive either, I don't think. So, you know, if you want one, I don't know what you want to do with it. Sew onto your coat, whatever you want to do. Uh, put it on your put it on your plate carrier. Um, be sure to subscribe to us on all social medias. So on YouTube, it's youtube.com slash popularfront. On Instagram, it's instagram.com slash popular.front on twitter you can follow me that's jake underscore hanrahan h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n that's how you spell my surname or you can follow the popular front account which is popular front co um i think that's all of it. we don't have facebook i fucking hate facebook i'm anti mark zuckerberg so <laughs> we don't have facebook although i'm kind of chatting shit there because we deal with instagram and who are now owned by facebook but whatever um so yeah so get us all there and a very special thanks to the following people Alium Leroy, Axel Iverson, Cedar Fenn, Chad Walker, Cody Bergerud, Dan, Dan Dunham, Diana Gorvanek, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, James Top Lab from the Discord, uh, Joanne Stocker, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Margaret Bowling, Peter McCormack, Ryan Sandercock, Stephen R. D. Henderson, Teddy Zachary Hinch, Casey Francis and Patrick Bronte thank you very much honestly without you I would not be able to fund this definitely not so thank you very much Uh, music in this episode as usual the intro was by an artist called Home and the outro was by my mate Son of Old go to his SoundCloud soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old